me out of here. That really hurt. Oh, man. Jim Gaffigan was the perfect choice for this character. He reproduces the recording so well. The Cinema Psych Podcast, the podcast where psychology meets film. I am your host, Dr. Alex Swan, and today we are continuing our two-episode run in the history of psychology. This episode, we are going to focus on more recent history than the last episode that we recorded and released. This one is going to be on Experimenter. Not the experimenter, experimenter. Now, it is also hyphenated in some parts of the world, so it's also referred to as experimenter, colon, the Stanley Milgram story. Yes, it is a biopic on Stanley Milgram, the famous social psychologist. I can't wait to talk about this movie in detail because it is a phenomenal look at just Stanley Milgram's stuff. It's good. Like his obedience experiments, his other social influence experiments. It's so good. It's so good. Now, the film came out in 2015, the same year that the Stanford Prison Experiment came out. That's the name of the film. Uh, I'm on record as, as not thinking that that's the name of the actual thing. But we talked about that on the show a couple of years ago with uh, uh, friends of the show, Jen Simons and Kelly Braitman. And it's been a while since I've returned to this movie, but I showed it recently in History of Psych this past semester, and I absolutely adore this movie and the way that they shot it and the way that they filmed it, the way that they do everything with it. So the film was written and directed by Michael Almereda uh, based on a biography of Stanley Milgram's career. Uh, the movie starts with him doing the obedience studies, but he does flash back to his time with Solomon Ash. So it starts in the early 1960s and works through the uh, later part of his career as well. So it's a really interesting biography of his time as a psych researcher, social psych researcher. The film stars Peter Sarsgaard as the titular character, Stanley Milgram. Winona Ryder plays Alexandra Sasha Milgram, his wife. She meets him shortly before they start working on the obedience studies. And um, they get married. 
Other stars include Anthony Edwards as a participant named Miller, uh, John Palladino, who plays the person who says the experiment must continue, Jim Gaffigan, as you heard in the tag at the top, plays the famous Confederate of the study. Now, Confederate here doesn't mean anything about the South. It is somebody who is in uh, cahoots with the experimenter. Jim Gaffigan plays this character, James McDonough, and it plays him so well. So good. Greatest casting in this movie. A couple of people that you may have all may also recognize. John Leguizamo plays a uh, participant in the obedience studies. Taryn Manning from uh, Orange is the New Black uh, plays a participant in the study. I mean, there's a lot of one of my favorite casting choices, though, was of Dennis Haysbert as Ozzie Davis. So good because we may not get to it in the movie, but there is a little there is a little scene here of the obedience studies being recreated into a TV movie in the early 1970s. And um, Kellen Lutz comes in and plays uh, a young William Shatner at the time, kind of in between a bunch of stuff. He's he's doing uh, T.J. Hooker, he's voicing the animated series for Star Trek. I mean, he's doing a bunch of other stuff, right? They come in and they they reenact the filming of the Obedience Study TV movie that was made. And it was a god-awful TV movie, I tell you what. This movie is so much better. But a little meta-commentary on making a movie within a movie, right? So one of the things that you'll note in this movie throughout, and we'll probably mention it quite frequently, is the use of the fourth wall break. And I was reading up on why they decided to do this, and it has to do 100% with how Milgram did his obedience studies films back in the 1960s. He would look at the camera and he would talk at the camera like he was teaching. And that was interspersed with him walking around the laboratory, walking around Yale uh, and, and and really showcasing the whole thing. And he learned how to do all of this from Ash recreating and making a film of his line studies. So there's a lot of fourth wall breaking. And there's a lot of goofiness when Sarsgaard as Milgram breaks the fourth wall, but it is so good. And it's done, um, it, it, it's not done annoyingly. It is done at important moments and there is no funny business. Nobody knows that he's doing this. It, it, it's not a part of the conversation. Like if you watch She-Hulk, some people might know that she's breaking the fourth wall. I don't know. Uh, but in this case, no, Stanley Milgram is the only one breaking the fourth wall, and it is quite, quite helpful to understand, especially some of the psychological ideas and theories and, um, and methods that he's talking about that he did in his life. So let's jump straight into this. My guest host today is Sophie Halliday. She's the current head of psychology and soon to be the head of 
social sciences at one of the top comprehensive schools in the UK. And for my American audience, this is about high school level. And she's got a personal drive and a professional career has been built on educating as many people as possible about the wonders and phenomena in psychology. And I think that's great. I hope she talks more about that. Sophie, welcome to the show. Hello, Alex. This is such an honor. Thank you for having me on your show. You bet. I'm happy to have you on. And again, this is a a treat for me because uh, longtime listeners may have heard the previous episode with uh, Sheila Thomas, a British woman, talking about the history of psych. And then we have another British woman on talking about the history of psych. The synergy is amazing. So (laughs) before we get started, I ask all my guests who are instructors of psychology why they um, use film in their teaching, as well as just general thoughts on film. So maybe we'll switch the order there. What are your thoughts on film in general? And then what is its purpose in your teaching? So film is it's such a complex media. And since its invention in the early 1900s, it has completely revolutionized the human experience. Absolutely. Film allows us to witness and experience things that we have never and will never experience. Mm -hmm. And it allows us to explore the human imagination and the human psyche in ways that had never been done before. We had art, we had literature, we had music. But now we put them all together into this one component that is called film. And every film has a connection to psychology or psychological theory. Yeah. Because it was created by a human mind. And that is Mm -hmm. the essence to psychology. Oh, yeah. Every aspect of a film, from the director to the actors, the script writing and the soundtrack, they all find their basis within some aspect of psychology. Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's uh, a mishmash of all the things and many guests that I've had on the show over the last few years have said similar things about why use film in teaching of psychology. Well, it's because it's a window into humans and humans make it. And that's what psychology is. Humans. Right. So what about what about it um, helps you in your teaching? Well, I use film as often as I can in my teaching because it allows students to see the theories that we teach in action. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It allows them to apply the knowledge and the theories that we teach and they get to see them in human in, in interaction. Mm-hmm. And every concept that I teach them, they will come to me and say, I saw that in a film. I saw that in a TV show. Nice. And it's like, yes, that is absolutely what we're trying to do. Uh-huh. We're trying to help you to understand the world around you. And it just blows their minds every single time. Mm-hmm. And the level that I teach, which is at A level. So for... that's AP for anyone who didn't catch the previous episode. <laughs> So, um, because of the level of students that I teach, for 99% of them, it will be the first time they have experienced academic psychology. Yeah. 
And that is why I chose to teach at that level, mm-hmm. because it will be the first time they get to learn the wonders of psychology. Mm-hmm. And I am honored to be someone who gets to show that to them and to do that in ways that are engaging and are interesting. It's why I do what I do. That's awesome. I love that. Uh, and how generally, how old are the A-level students? Um, so they are um, about 16 to 18. Yeah, okay. That's what I thought. So um, sort of mid to later part of their high school. And and maybe you create psych majors after this as they go to uni, right? Oh, absolutely. We have a large number of our students continue to do psychology at um, university, mm-hmm. which I believe is your college, is it? Well, either one. Yeah, we use yeah. both. Um, so a large number of them continue psychology at university. Mm-hmm. And we even have students who didn't do psychology at A-level then come to us and say, I've heard about psychology and I now want to do it at university. I love which it. Which is just fantastic. So their friends are sharing too. That's amazing. I love it. Okay. So let's pivot to our discussion today. So at the in the intro... I stated that we were talking about Experimenter, the Stanley Milgram story. Sometimes it's it's just referred to as Experimenter. Sometimes we got the colon. So what was your reasoning behind choosing this one for our discussion today? And of course, when we chatted earlier in the year, um, I had already chosen Experimenter for my history of psych class. So what... <laughs> What was your um, uh, reasons for for choosing this one? Because this is Psych 101. This is one of the most well-known experiments in the history of psychological research. Even if you have never taken a psych class, you have probably heard of this experiment. (laughs) Yeah. And it completely changed the way psychological research mm-hmm. was conducted. We have ethical guidelines because of this research and mm-hmm. because of the ethics it broke. Um, this, the research caused outrage. And even the researcher himself, the experimenter, couldn't believe what he found. Mm-hmm. And for someone who is a psychology geek, <laughs> this was such a fan a fan film it had i agree exactly replicates and mimics the experiment Mm -hmm. you have the who's who of social psychology appearing in this film Mm -hmm. and this experiment explores dark themes it explores what normal everyday people could be capable of Mm -hmm including what people would say they would never be able to do. It explores obedience, authority, and the idea of just following orders. This film is a perfect reenactment, and it is truly shocking. <laughs> Good one. Thank you, John. <laughs> I love it. Try to fit that pun in there. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, we have to, right? Uh, (laughs) uh, I would say compared to the other 2015 uh, psych movie that came out, History of Psych Movie, the Stanford Prison Experiment, this one's a little less gnarly, 
when it comes down to the performances, but I think you get a sense of how the participants in the study thought about what it is that they were doing. And as far as ethicality goes, we can, we're, we're obviously going to get into that for sure in our discussion. But I would say when you compare the other 2015 movie here, um, definitely Stanford is the worst of the bunch. Uh, also, you want to make sure that you've got... <laughs> You've, you're prepared to watch that one. This one, I think, goes down very smooth. Uh, there aren't too many shocking scenes, uh, if, if any. I had to get the pun in there as well. Um, <laughs> and there aren't. There's nothing that will that will uh, make you go, oh, oh my gosh, what is going on? Uh, in in uh, in that sense. So, it of the two. It is the one that uh, I think is more suitable for classrooms and especially for for high school level classrooms. Right. So uh, I want to talk about the obedience study. The way the film works for those who haven't seen it is it is a tight 90 minute movie. It's got um, essentially two parts to it. It's the beginning part interspersed with some flashbacks is about I would say the first maybe half to two thirds of the movie is focused on the obedience study, the completion of it, the background of it, and then maybe some of the aftermath. And then the rest of the movie pivots to Milgram's later career. After Yale, he had to move to CUNY, the City University of New York. And that was a bit of a demotion for him. So he was not granted tenure at Yale, uh, even after this groundbreaking study. So we kind of have to follow him in his career trajectory, which involves moving from <laughs> New Haven, Connecticut. Oh, so terrible to <laughs> um, Manhattan. Oh, also so terrible, right? These are the worst places to live. Uh, in the 1960s and 70s. So bad. But that's how we follow him. So it immediately start. We immediately start with the experiment. And so, Sophie, do you want to describe the experiment um, and how the filmmakers went about recreating Milgram's own film, the film that he made? So the film starts off immediately with the participants entering the lab and starting the experiment. Mm -hmm. So for us as an audience of the film, we it's almost as if we are taking part in the experiment itself. We are as naive as the participants themselves. Mm -hmm. And in the experiment, you have the researcher in the grey lab coat. Mm -hmm. You have Mr. Wallace. And then you have the other participant one of them is a teacher one of them's a learner mm -hmm. the learner is mr wallace he is then um rigged up to an electrical device and he just makes everybody casually aware that he has a heart condition i love it and jim gaffigan plays this this person this real life person really well oh he's the absolute spitting image 
He's the absolute spitting image of the Mr. Wallace used in the experiment. Right, yeah. And in fact, every aspect of the experiment almost directly mirrors Milgram's own footage. Mm Mm-hmm. Even down to the shirts the participants are wearing are the same shirts as the ones in the footage. Yeah. Because Milgram recorded um, some some parts of his experiment. So we have been able to see the participants themselves react. We were able to see the setup of it. Mm -hmm. And you can tell that the film had a lot of inspiration and used that footage to directly inform the film, which was fantastic to see. Yeah, it was quite fun. Uh, And so what does the learner and the teacher do during the experiment? So the the learner is um, wired up to this electrical box and the teacher has to test them on word pairs. Mm -hmm. They're told that it's looking at the effect of punishment on learning and mm-hmm. on memory. So the teacher, who is the participant, has to read out some word pairs. If Mr. Wallace, the learner, were to get it wrong, they would have to give him an electrical shock, which is why he was wired up to the electric box. The role of the researcher initially seems just to sit at the back and observe. Yeah. However, the electrical shocks are not real. But what is realistic is the fact that at a certain point, Mr. Wallace starts saying he's in pain. Mm-hmm. He starts saying that he can't stand this anymore. He reminds them he has a heart condition. Mm-hmm. You start to hear him scream. You start to hear him yell. And as the electric shocks get, get higher voltage and higher voltage, the pain and the screaming intensifies. Now, This is where the researcher comes into it. The researcher's job is to encourage the teacher to continue. Right. And so, surprise, surprise, the experiment's not actually about punishment and memory. The experiment is actually about would we obey orders from authority even if it involves harming an innocent person? Um, Why did you give him, the man in the other room, the learner, the shocks? Well, as you can see, I I wanted to stop because each time he gave him a shock, the guy hollered. Did it sound as if he was in pain? Yeah. Did he say he wanted you to stop the experiment? Yes. Did he have a right to stop the experiment? I don't know. Why didn't you stop at that point when he asked you to stop? Why didn't I stop? Well, because... Because he told me to continue. Why did you listen to that man and not the man in pain? Well, because I thought the experiment depended on me. And, and nobody told me to stop. He asked you to stop. Well, that, that, that's true, but, but he's the, um, you know, the subject, shall we say. Who was the... Who bore the responsibility for the fact that this man was being shocked? I don't know. Could you fill out items 6 through 18 on the questionnaire in front of you, please? Here's a pen. How 
I get a little skittish, uh, <laughs> nervous. As I explained to Mr. Wallace in the other room, uh, this shock generator is actually used with small animals for laboratory experiments, mice and rats and so forth. The visual designation is actually misleading. Uh, this shock generator has actually been adjusted so that the shocks were just slightly stronger than the shock you experienced. Are you all right? Yeah, I'm fine. You know, no hard feelings. I, I probably would have done the same thing myself. <laughs> After this scene that was uh, described by Sophie, they um, cut to a breaking the fourth wall moment where an elephant is following uh, Milgram down one of the uh, Yale psych lab hallways. And to me, this is one of the great aspects of this film. It's very subtle, but it's just like, oh, the elephant in the room. Why are we talking about obedience with these studies? Well, the reason is that Milgram is Jewish. And his family fled the Holocaust. And so Milgram was extremely interested as to how lower level officers and even enlisted men in the German military and also self-proclaimed Nazis, why they would follow such despicable and disgusting orders to exterminate and treat other people so inhumanely and dehumanize them in that way. And so this, as he's explaining, is the impetus for his research, right? He's saying, okay, well, what makes people obey this kind of authority? The, the final solution comes from on high. The highest person, Hitler, all the way down the ranks, but you don't have officers doing this uh, terrible work on a day-to-day -day basis. It's lower-level people. So why are they engaging in these acts? And so that was the crux of his investigation. And the viewpoint at the time was that Nazi Germany was unique mm -hmm. in that it was a country where only those sort of atrocities could happen. And public opinion in other countries, for example, America, the UK, was that that would never right. happen here. That was unique to Nazi Germany. And Milgram wanted to prove that. He wanted to look at, well, what did make Nazi Germany unique and different when giving orders in another country wouldn't have the same effect? People wouldn't obey mm -hmm. in the same way. And he found the exact opposite. That people obey exactly. when they don't have enough information, right? They they constantly look back at the experimenter for guidance. And the only thing the experimenter or researcher, as you described that person, uh, would say is the experiment must continue. Uh, it is essential uh, or it is crucial for you to continue with the experiment. The learner must learn the words before they can, you know, end. And it's really scary. It's really scary as the teacher not even being in the same room with the learner. And eventually that learner or Mr. Wallace goes quiet. And so when you're hitting that 450 XXX 
final shock level, 450 volts, uh, is what is is claimed to be. It's not actually 450 volts, but um, when they hit that and it makes the buzzer sound and there's no feedback whatsoever, because you're also supposed to, as the, as the teacher, consider a correct answer for a non-answer. So once the Confederate in the other room is no longer pressing the buzzer to be, <laughs> you know, in a, I, I, I chuckle because we, we know now that the other person in the other room was just like reading the magazine or reading the newspaper or whatever, pressing the button on a recorder and then just kind of sitting back. But as soon as they're done, stop pressing the button, the other person on the other side is just like, what, what do I do? Exactly. And as you said, at a certain voltage, Mr. Wallace was told not to make a sound. And they they were told to continue shocking him even when yeah. he was silent. So the screaming, the the shouting stopped, yet they were told to continue the electric shocks. And as well, when they got to the maximum voltage of 450, if he was still silent, they were informed to give him the 450 volt again, shock again. And again and again. So even when you got to the maximum voltage, you didn't stop there. You just gave him the highest shock for as long as he continued to remain silent. Yeah. And, and, and so it's a, a really, I think uh, Milgram calls it the elegant interaction laboratory in his film. They don't re reference the name of that in this movie, but in, in Milgram's film, he calls it elegant. And I, and I love it because it's such an elegant interaction. Psychiatrists, many of you in this room, predicted that only one person in a thousand would deliver the shocks across the board, an estimate that was off by a factor of 500. So what happened in the lab was discovered, not planned. But you expected, you knew you were going to worry some people. Mm -hmm. Stress, in fact, was a part of it. Well, every, every... Extreme stress. Every experiment is a situation where the end is unknown indeterminate something that might fail the indeterminacy is part of the excitement ethics the undertow of ethics i wanted to ask a, i wanted to ask a question a series of questions about the psychological function of obedience the conditions that shape it the defense mechanisms it entails the emotional forces that, that keep a person obeying. As someone with pretensions as a moral educator, let me suggest that science must enhance our moral personhood, not, not diminish it. You force people to torture other people? No. To see if no. they are... No, no. That is alien to my view. No one was forced, right? The experimenter told the subject to perform an action. What happened between the command and the outcome is the individual with a conscience and a will who can either obey or disobey. I don't see how you can seriously equate victimization in a laboratory con with a willful participation in mass murder. Victimization. Look, when the experiments were complete, all the subjects were sent this questionnaire. Here's some examples. 84% said they were glad to have been in the experiment. 15% indicated neutral feelings. 1.3% indicated negative feelings. 1.3%.
Four-fifths thought more experiments of this sort should be carried out, and 74% said they had learned something of personal importance about themselves and about the conditions that shape human action. So let's talk about the ethics of this, because I think they did a pretty good job of setting up the experiment. So let's talk about the ethics of this. So we're, we come at the ethics of this from the perspective of the participant as a modern set of uh, as researchers, as teachers. And we need to explain what was good and what was bad about this uh, this set of experiments. So one of the things that the film, uh, the movie experimenter does well is showing the amount of distress that these participants were under as they were doing it. Um, and the, the the book and the series of papers that Milgram wrote, he, he obviously went into great detail as to what those physical representations were. You know, he said people would uh, sweat. They would tremble when they were pressing the uh, buttons on the shock machine, stuttering and giving the question out loud, biting their lips, groaning every time they had to press the button. Okay, um, digging. Some people digged their fingernails into their skin, which is a hard thing to do. A lot of people would chuckle, nervous laughter. It it, it was wild, and some people even had fits or seizures on engaging in this level of barbarism. And 14 out of the 40 original men who participated in this uh, study, so they ended up following up with other samples, including women, younger people, that kind of thing. But of the original 40 men who were the teachers in the study, 14 of them, so a little less than half, 14 of them engaged in nervous laughter and smiling. And that's quite a few people. And they show this in the movie, only like one or two. But of course, they're not going to show 40 different people, but about one or two. And almost every, uh, excuse me, every participant paused to ask if they needed to continue. Every person before they were even at 450 volts. Well before, right? Um, some people would say, I'll give you the money back if you... Uh, if you can, you know, stop this right now. OK. And so what is what is the ethical conundrum that we find ourselves uh, here with this uh, study and what people say in the movie about it? It all boils down to the concept of cost benefit mm -hmm. analysis, the cost of the effects on the participants versus the benefits that we as psychologists, as humans understand ourselves and our own behavior. So the most, um, the, the most important ethical issue that Milgram, um, that Milgram broke really was the lack of protection mm -hmm. from harm. Psychological researchers have the, um, have the responsibility to ensure their participants are kept safe right. from harm, either physical or right. psychological. And Almost every participant experienced some physical or psychological mm -hmm. harm. If it wasn't the digging their fingernails into their flesh, if it wasn't the seizures, it was the fact that they would go home at night and think, I am capable of doing that to another human being. And 
Another thing we have to do as researchers is ensure that participants leave in the same state that they entered. Right. That's critical. And his participants definitely weren't. They, they, they did, by the end of the experiment, they did know Mr. Wallace was fine. They did know that actually he wasn't hurt. But wasn't even hooked up to the shock machine. That no, kind of thing. exactly. Yep. But it, they still left with the knowledge they were capable of doing that. Yeah. And they show in the film um, a follow up because part of the what the film does well is accelerate some things for the viewer. Right. Because like I said, it's a very tight film. Our uh, our 30 hour 40. And what they do show us in the movie is people having to come back to Yale to be debriefed. One of the biggest criticisms uh, of the original set of studies, not the follow ups, but the original set of studies was that um, participants weren't properly debriefed. That is critical, right, to your point of coming in uh, or leaving as uh, the same way as they're coming in. Right. Absolutely. And so in the movie, they show them having to come back and talk to a clinical psychologist at Yale. This is not another experiment. There's no trick here can see why you may have your doubts. Yes. This is a debriefing meeting. We're here to assess the after effects. So tell us how you feel. I'd like to know uh, what the point is of it. It's to learn something about human nature. That was the aim. Professor Milgram? I hope that I sincerely hope that basically you don't have the feeling that you would rather not have been a part of this experiment. It's an interesting life experience. I don't like hurting anyone, and I can't understand myself going all the way. It left me feeling guilty. Mm -hmm. Were we supposed to have coffee? Yeah. This meeting? I told my husband. I know I wasn't supposed to, but I didn't do everything I'm told. He said he wouldn't have done the shocks. He would have refused. I wanted to cry, but I started to laugh. I think I did both. Yeah, well, I was quite frightened and I was I was quivering and it's... I, I actually tried to memorize the word pairs myself so that if they switched around, I wouldn't have to get those shocks. There's a tendency to think that everything a person does is due to the feelings or ideas within the person. You haven't had your coffee. You want coffee? Yes. Uh, cream, sugar? I'll take two sugars. Both, please. Yes, thank you. But sometimes a person's actions depend equally on the situation you find yourself in. And in this case, the power of the situation overwhelmed your personal power. I'm an understanding person, okay? I'm an intelligent human being. Speak the truth to me. And I'll cooperate gladly, even if it's a bitter truth. But don't lie to me. Well, the purpose was to advance science, learn something. Maybe one shouldn't case. do this kind of experiment if you have to deceive. <laughs> Look, you can deceive other people, but don't deceive me. I, I, again, another brilliant fourth wall break is Milgram turns to the camera and is just like, listen, these people are, yes, demonstrably shaken, okay? They realized something about themselves, but they also agree that it was important to know and it was important to find out. 
And the vast majority of people in his studies say 84% said glad or very glad to have participated. 15% chose neutral options. And this was 92% of the former participants from multiple studies participating because he wanted to address these criticisms. And I think that's left out of the discussion in Milgram in in high school or or college level discussions of this. It's like we say what he did was bad and then we move on. But in actuality, he was trying to do right by every person according to what he thought was right. I got to give him I got to give him credit. And the way that Sarsgaard's plays this is he does show empathy. It's very flat affect empathy, but it, it is empathy. And there's that great scene where Milgram is in front of the ethics board and he's having to justify why right. he did what he did. And again, in the film, it's very, it's very calm. It's very measured. He makes genuine points. Um, and when I say him, I mean um, the character of Milgram. Yeah. So there, there is a defense for Milgram. As you said, it's very easy to say immediately those people were harmed, it's not acceptable. But in fact, Milgram did try to mitigate that through mm-hmm. the debriefing, through the offering of counselling. Right. And in fact, in the follow-up, as you mentioned, 74% of participants stated that they had learned something of personal importance. Yeah. So in fact, actually, they had, yes, they had gone away making them think about themselves as a person, but actually mm-hmm. what they had learned from that is actually it's important to understanding us as humans. And of course, that doesn't mean that we can do anything to anyone in the name of science. But Milgram did do something that will never be conducted again. And what we have learned from yeah. that and the impact that it has is, is significant. And he did genuinely try to mitigate some of those ethics. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, it, it it definitely won't be uh, reproduced in the way that it was in the early 1960s. But there is a great article in 2009, uh, came out in 2009, some researchers in the Netherlands, uh, which I guess they got special, special permission to recreate as best they could with, of course, some of the safeguards that 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 were figured out, in the, you know, 30, 40 years uh, between. And they found very similar results in recreating as best they could. And, and they also they also filmed this, too, which I thought was great as well um, in, in very similar fashions with a with a, um, a observation window and two separate rooms and all, all the whole thing. And they found very similar results back in 2009 with as close to a replication as they could get. That was ethically agreeable to everyone. And so while there are issues, methodological issues with Milgram's findings and his his um, studies over that five year period of him, of his initial and then his follow ups with other samples and other uh, orientations with different people, uh, two teachers in the room and uh, all these kinds of variations, while there are methodical, methodological issues that we can all hearken to, I think it's pretty important to recognize that it's still pretty basic, a finding that if we are told by somebody 
that we are obeying or in all in for all intents and purposes that is somebody who is our boss we are going to engage in some form of behavior change and the real life application that those findings have the way that we can use that knowledge to improve our experiences as humans to improve the lives of others that also has to be taken into consideration yeah absolutely i think the i think the filmmakers do a very good job of treading that line um and again peter sarsgaard does a fantastic recreation of a very um expressionless person like milgram and and shows us the details and the nitty gritty behind. And and as I said, it did have an impact on his career. He did not get tenure at at Yale, uh, which I'm coming to learn. And this is some of my naivete in academia. And, and this might be some interesting tidbits for for you, Sophie, um, as somebody outside of the States. A lot of the goings on at Ivy League schools like Harvard, Yale, Brown, Princeton, etc., have this um, research farming angle. This is a very cynical view, so I just want to just want to point that out. That they're very uh, and and this especially happened very recently with a phenomenal social psychologist at Harvard, where the idea is get somebody in with the promise of tenure, okay, tenure track job, and they crank out research, world useful research. A lot of grants, get a lot of grants, which pay gets put into the coffers of overhead with uh, these universities, right? They get some of that money too. And then by the time the tenure decision comes around, it's just like, well, you know, once you get tenure, you're kind of going to kind of slow down with stuff. So, yeah, we don't want you to slow down. So we're going to deny you tenure and get somebody else to come in and do this crank out research for the promise of tenure. And this is what the Ivy Leagues have been doing for decades, is what I've come to find out. Tenure track is a is a is a is a naughty word at the and this is just from my own observations, because when I learned that he didn't get tenure at Yale, when Milgram didn't get tenure at Yale in the 1960s, when pretty much everyone was getting tenure everywhere because there was no shortage of a university assistantships and professorships right there was no shortage anywhere you could i just my my doctoral advisor got his job at ucsb at university of california santa barbara with the thinnest of resumes i mean he worked with a really cool guy uh who won a nobel prize but i mean his resume my advisor's resume super thin so it was no shortage he could have gotten tenure but there was some politics at play and there was, OK, well, you're going to slow down. We're not going to get you tenure. But then he goes to CUNY, the City University of New York, which doesn't give him tenure right away. He has to work for it. And we learn about some different studies, which we're going to talk about after the break. It had an effect on his career. He didn't get the tenure. You know, you could go into the politics of all of that. You could go into what I just said. But when I think what it comes down to is I think Yale thought he was going to be bad publicity. I don't know. What do you what do you think about the effect on his career that you see in the movie? When you do an experiment like that, 
I think you know in the back of your head your career is going to change. You, <laughs> yeah. you don't do an experiment like that and not know is something significant going to happen. And one of the reasons why I really like the film is because throughout it all, it's clear from the portrayal of Milgram, he's doing it for psychology. He's doing mm-hmm. it for science. And it could have gone two completely different ways. It could have brought him fame. It could have brought him notoriety. And in fact, it brought him both. It did. Uh, and also infamy, I would say, in some circles. Exactly. And he, like you said, he, he became famous for being infamous. Yeah. He became known as the person who, in, in, some of, in some people's words, tortured participants. <laughs> yeah. And I, th- I think that when you do an experiment like that, you, you hope it will be seen for the value that it's seen. But once the public, once the press get a hold of it, they will make of it what they want to make of it. And that's what Milgram found. Yeah, I agree. And we see that in in one uh, lay people on the street, somebody dressed like a Blinken and then just a random woman who had seen him on TV or had seen it, had had seen his book or a, a review of his book. And he's like, I'm I'm going to explain this from uh, my perspective to those two people, they don't really know what he's talking about. Or the student in the classroom when he gets to CUNY and he's being introduced by one of his colleagues. And it's like they just focus on that one aspect. And he's like, it's not just the one thing. It's the whole thing. Look at the whole picture. And the scene where he goes on to the, um, the interview show sure. and they immediately start off with, the negative press, the negative headlines before he's even got a chance to explain who he is and why he's there. Okay, so we're going to take a quick break and come back with more of the amazing psych stuff in Experimenter. It's even more than just the obedience experiment. So stay tuned, everyone. Are you a big fan of the Cinema Psych podcast, a connoisseur of the compelling stories and intriguing insights that we have on this show? Well, show your love in style with our premium podcast merchandise. Yeah, that's right. I've updated the podcast store from ultra comfy hoodies, perfect for cozy podcast binges to sleek coffee mugs that add a dash of personality to your morning routine. Our merchandise store has it all. I've added so many new products and it's designed to withstand countless listening marathons. There are a lot of episodes. I think you'll love them. But wait, there is more. Every week, there is a new promotion, turning up the volume on value. So keep an eye out for our exciting special promotions. Every other week, 15% off in between. Sometimes there's a special 25% off day. And then sometimes there's free shipping. It's the perfect way to score your Cinema Psych podcast merch for less. 
I'm excited to have expanded the merchandise offerings, but I'm really excited to say that new designs are coming up. And you can put these designs on all of the merchandise. So keep an eye out for new arrivals in the design section. So don't just listen, wear it, flaunt it, live it. Visit our merchandise store at cinemasychpod.swansych.com slash store to shop your love for the Cinema Psych Podcast today. Remember, every purchase goes directly to supporting this show. And of course, thanks for listening to this show. I love doing it. Now let's get back into it. And we are back with Sophie Halliday talking Experimenter, the Stanley Milgram story. Film came out in 2015, so it's about eight years old now. Great look at Stanley Milgram as the person with some family life. Didn't even talk about Winona Ryder being his uh, wife, Sasha, who uh, tells him everything and and nothing and and uh, is his biggest cheerleader. But forget her. I want to talk about how this movie does a really good job of explaining psych theory, social psych theory, to the audience. Uh, Milgram takes a fourth wall break every so often to explain what it is uh, that the particular thing that he's talking about or that he's showing on screen or whatever is happening as far as his experiments are going, explains it to the audience in in basic terms. So, Sophie, what what are some of the uh, theories that he's he's discussing, especially his own uh, in this in this movie? So towards the end of the film, um, the character of Milgram breaks the fourth wall and defines to us the concept of the agentic state. Yeah. And the agentic state is where we obey orders from authority and we take no personal responsibility for our actions. And Milgram in the film describes a number of different examples. For example, it's store policy. Mm-hmm. So I am not responsible for this consequence, it's store policy. Right. Or I was just following orders. Hence now, the Nazis, yep. Exactly. Milgram's theory was that the majority of the time we are in what's called an autonomous state. Mm-hmm. We act according to our own desires and wishes. We act in accordance to free will. Then when we get um, orders from authority, we go into this agentic state. And the movement from autonomous to agentic is actually known as the agentic shift. Mm-hmm. So most of our time, we are autonomous. However, when we get orders from an authority figure, we go into this agentic state where we no longer see ourselves as responsible for our actions. And that can be seen throughout the film, Mm -hmm. where the participants in the film don't know who is responsible for the harm to Mr. Wallace, or they push the responsibility onto the researcher. Right. That's great. That was a great uh, breakdown of it. 
the other thing that I I found in the movie that he really does a good job of explaining is when he harkens back to his graduate studies and how they take a little bit of a break, uh, a little bit of a pause in the current events to tell us about Solomon Ash. That's who he worked with as a graduate student. So there is a classic film of Solomon Ash's line experiment, and they sh uh, recreate it in the film. Uh, and it's really great. Uh, watch that on YouTube, uh, the uh, recreation of it. So Solomon Ash did not film it at the start, but after it started getting a lot of play, he decided to bring some people back to the lab and go through it. And so then they recreate this in the film. So kind of layers of an onion right here that we're, we're peeling to talk about conformity. And so if you're not familiar with the, uh, the line experiment from Ash, uh, a group of people come in to a laboratory room and only one of them is the naive participant. Everyone else is a confederate and their job is to uh, create a consensus around a wrong answer to see if that changes the answer of the actual participant. Now, what are the answers that are given? Well, they're shown, and under the pretense that this is a visual perception test uh, and visual acuity test, uh, the experimenter shows a target line to three other lines. And this simple task is to say which target matches one of these three lines in length. And so the participant is set up at the penultimate or the anti-penultimate uh, position in the line of people giving their answers. Everyone gives their answers sequentially. And so the participant is toward the end. And so they do a few rounds of this with different length lines, and everyone gives the correct answer for the first few trials. And then eventually they start changing their answers to the wrong one and by the time it gets to the participant are they going to conform to the consensus of the group or are they going to be different and of course the vast majority of us do not want to be different and so in true fashion uh in in a way that shows conformity here they don't be themselves. They conform to the wrong answer. They are literally getting the wrong answer on a very simple test. Very simple test. And they choose the wrong answer. Because when Ash asked them privately on their own, what was the right answer? They gave the right answer 99% of the time. 99% of the time. And when he said to them, well, why did you give the wrong answer when you're in the group? They were very open with the fact of well i didn't want to be the only one saying the correct answer as a very, and then they have the classic candid camera bit where <laughs> and this is my one of my favorites so the candid camera was an old show in the 1950s and 1960s where it was essentially the first prank show to be honest uh and they had a they'd rigged up a um elevator to keep the doors open uh, while people were waiting to go up uh, to another level. And they would have all of these uh, actors, these Confederates, turn around to face the back of the elevator, which, you know, to the vast majority of people who've ever used an elevator, we go in 
And then we turn around to face the door to go back out. And so when these people turn around and they face the back while they're waiting to go up or down the elevator, we see the person, the unsuspecting, uh, the unsuspecting person in the middle turn around. There's, re- there's one great person who does like a quarter turn and then another quarter turn. And then maybe like uh, and maybe like a sixth turn and then finally just does the whole thing. It's so good. But those two things are added as a way to conceptualize obedience. Obedience in social influence is just another aspect of conformity, a conforming to an authority. Right. So it's a special kind of conformity. I designed a series of variations, 25 in all, and continue the experiments over the next two semesters. We adjust the script so that the learner bangs on the wall, but says nothing. We ask the teacher to physically press the learner's hand on a copper plate, forcing him to receive the shock. Wrong, 135 volts. We move the experiment into a shabby office in Bridgeport to deduct the potential intimidation factor of Ivy League prestige. And back at Yale, we include women. What did you just do? Uh, he said, ow. Did you turn off the machine? I, I, I thought that if it seemed like I, you know, turn. Okay. <clears throat> Short. The machine. Please continue, teacher. Okay, short sentence, movie, time, skirt. I'm sorry, that's wrong. It's short time. Nearly every case, the essential results are the same. They hesitate, sigh, tremble, and groan, but they advance to the last switch, 450 volts, danger, severe shock, XXX, because they're politely told to. What else did you spot in the film as far as theory goes, Sophie? There's a number of different things that um, the film touched upon. One of the ones was the variations that Milgram did of his experiment. Mm-hmm. So Milgram did the original experiment and then did different variations to see whether obedience increased or decreased. Right. And they did touch upon this briefly in the film by doing some cut scenes to the different variations. Right. So he didn't just do the experiment once. He actually did it several times using different participants or with different conditions. Mm-hmm. So, for example, the film talks about one of the conditions where they had to physically move Mr. Wallace's hand onto a shock plate. Yep. So they had to physically move him in order for him to get the electric shock. Mm-hmm. They changed the location as well. So they moved it from Yale University to a rundown office. Mm-hmm. And again, they found that even though obedience may decrease in certain situations, obedience levels were still high. 
So in the one where they had to physically move Mr. Wallace's hand to shock him, obedience rates were still 30%. And yes, that's lower, but still 30% obedience rate of physically moving a man's hand to give him an electric shock. That's still, that's still phenomenal in and of itself. Yeah. And so a great explanation for why the situation is a part of our a part of our psychology right that a situation will play a role and it will increase or decrease our um own psychology our our what what we have internally and it will change the way that we engage with others so i i think that's uh the a great uh, a great way that they showed that it's not just in at Yale, it's not just with men. It's not just the learner is hidden and the experimenter or the the researchers in in a lab coat and says the experiment must continue. It's all of these variations do produce some level of obedience. Now, and if you were a dictator or some crazy person like Hitler, and you find someone who wants to disobey you because they're part of the 70%, let's say, then you just get rid of them and find somebody from that 30% to carry out your orders, right? So the fact that there is never zero obedience is pretty critical, pretty critical. Okay, so enough of the obedience experiments, as much, as, as much fun as they are. Let's talk about... Um, the different experiment, the different Milgram experiments uh, that are found in the movie that have nothing to do with <laughs> may not have anything to do with obedience, maybe a little bit, maybe a little conformity. But um, what are the other ones? Yes. So the film actually explores um, some of the other experiments that Milgram performed um, following the um, electric shock experiment. Yeah, but so not really one... famous for, you know? No, no. Um, the electric shock one is the one that shadowed the whole of his career. Mm. So he did do other experiments, but these are ones that definitely you don't get taught about. You, They're not in the psych textbooks in the same way. Right. One of the ones that the film explores is the um, lost letter experiment. Mm -hmm. Not from the lost letter technique, which I conceived of at Yale and was refined at Harvard. Leave a letter, a sealed stamped letter, but unmailed for someone else to find. Leave it on a sidewalk, inside a store, a phone booth. Put it under the windshield wipers of a parked car with a note saying, found near car. All letters are addressed to the same post office box, but they're evenly split between four different intended recipients. Friends of the Communist Party, friends of the Nazi Party, medical research associates, and Mr. Walter Carnap, all fictitious. The innocuous content of the letters, if anyone's curious enough to open and read, is a simple message from Max to Walter, proposing an upcoming meeting. Carnap. It's kind of an odd name. Like the philosopher? Two weeks out of a hundred lost letters to each addressee, 72 were sent to the medical research associates, while 71 were sent to Mr. Walter Carnap. 
but a mere 25 to the friends of the communists, and the same number, 25, to the Nazis. We can deduce from this that the American public has an aversion to Nazis and communists, results that are reasonable and even comforting, though not startling. Why not take it further? Takedo Murata, another student, drives to Charlotte and Raleigh, North Carolina, to lose a new batch of letters. When the letters come back, the percentages once again confirm expected prejudices. Pro-white letters get mailed more often in white neighborhoods. More pro-Negro letters get mailed from black neighborhoods. A variation. I hire a pilot with a Piper Cup to fly low for Worcester, Massachusetts, spilling lost letters. They land in trees, ponds, on roof. Those that were addressed to diversive parties or diversive communities were less likely to be sent back. Yeah, right. Lost letters were trashed. <laughs> oh, exactly. the friends of the Nazi party aren't getting this one. Not on my watch. <laughs> I know small acts. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so that that was a that was a fun one. I, I I'm going to be honest with you. Um, I mean, I'm not a social psychologist by training, but um, I had no idea about this until I watched this movie. I must admit there were some aspects that, again, this movie inspired me to go away and look deeper into Milgram's career. Mm -hmm. And so the, the Lost Letters, I had never known it in that level of detail as the mm -hmm. film portrayed it. Um, and then that led me to look down the rabbit hole of Milgram's career. Yeah. And I was finding some fascinating theories that he came up with. For example, he looked at the concept of, um, or how can I pronounce that? Uh, Cyranoids, like Serrano de Bergerac. Cyranoids. Oh, yeah, sure. Mm -hmm. That's and fine. Again, that was something that I had never, I had never been taught. It's mm -hmm. something that never came up in any of my psych classes. But it's again, it's such fascinating of just where this film inspired just to go, okay, mm -hmm. let's look at what else he did because he did have a rich career. Mm -hmm. And it's and I'm really happy to see the film portray and present that alongside his most famous experiment. The the way that they described it was um very fun. Um and then showing the the process of collecting letters and mailing out the letters and having his grad stu grad students code the letters and all of that. It's really fun stuff that the movie does. Um what else did they show in the movie? Um, the one that I think as well, if I was going to replicate any psychological experiment, uh -huh. it might be this one. Okay. It was the gawking in the street experiment. <laughs> yeah, I do this all the time. Where, where what happened was he just got someone to look at a certain spot on a building and just stand and stare. Uh -huh. And then he got, and that was a confederate, that was one of his students then maybe one of his other students would walk up and join and stare. And the question was, how many people would just stop and stare at something that they had no idea what it was? <laughs> exactly. And 
again, it's just pure human behavior and it's wonderful. And we don't know why we do it, but it's fantastic that we do. Yeah, it's really it's I mean, evolutionary, I would imagine that we do that. But um, it's it's and it's a, a throwaway little description toward the end of the movie of gawking in the street but it's something for social influence that i really love having my students do and uh, there are a couple of other ones there's the six degrees of separation or the small world study um which he describes in not a lot of detail but he does explain how the vast majority of people are connected through various means of six or fewer um, degrees of one another uh, and he would always start th- there are a lot of methodological issues um, as far and and ecological validity issues with this particular study so don't look too deeply into this but he would choose a person in the midwest the middle of the u.s and trace it back and and following a trail of letters would trace it back to the lab in um in at cuny which I think was pretty cool. There are a lot of issues with this, and we don't have time to talk about those issues in, in this in this episode. But it is a fun little thing that he talks about, and it gives it, it gave credence to the idea of six degrees of separation or the six degrees of Kevin Bacon, of which we all are, of course. Um, and then the final one that they talk about is only from the mind of someone who lives in a very densely populated. Uh, uh, city and uses public transportation to get around, right? Not driving all of that much. Uh, he, he gets a car, but then he has to give it, get, give it back because you know we don't want that gaudy car. Is the familiar stranger experiment around this time? I was also working on the familiar stranger. We take photographs of commuters on a train platform. Each figure in the photographs are given a number. The photographs are duplicated, and a week later, the students follow up. Hello. I'm a student at CUNY. Would you mind filling out this questionnaire? Oh, okay. Also, do you recognize any of these people? No. What about here? Well, that's me. Yes. Can you identify anyone else? Uh, not by name. Most commuters recognize, on average, four individuals that they see in their daily routine but never speak to, familiar strangers. Amongst these are sociometric stars, figures that they not only recognize, but even fantasize about. They wonder what kind of lives these strangers lead, what their jobs are like, and if they ran into each other in another place, or if some emergency jolted them out of this routine, they might start to speak. So, Sophie, um, being in Birmingham, do you uh, spend your time on public transport? I don't know what the public transportation situation is like. In- yeah, we we have um, buses, we have trams, we have trains. Awesome. Here I am prom- promoting public transport here in Birmingham. <laughs> Excellent. So, so the do you have this? Train- do you have this? familiar stranger situation going on with you well i was just about to say actually that part of the familiar stranger is fantasizing about someone so i might not say that i have that as much (laughs) 
but it's about the idea that you see certain people on a regular basis just through the routine of life. Mm-hmm. And even though you don't know who they are, you don't know their name, you don't know much about them, you begin, you begin to feel the connection with them because you share this common space. Mm-hmm. And you begin to fantasize about that person. You wonder what their life is like. You wonder who they are. And you feel, again, in a strange way, a connection to that person, despite the fact they are just a stranger who you happen to see on a regular basis. Yeah, it's a really cool uh, study. And um, what was the the characterization of the photographs that they were, the Polaroids? Oh, so that was, um, they would take pictures of people that say stood at a bus queue Mm -hmm. or um sat on a train and then a week or so later ask them what do you know about the people in this queue or on this train Mm -hmm. so they would so they would just um say to that person okay you sit by these people you know every day or you stand in this queue every week what do you know about these people? And in fact, again, what they would find is that for some people, they would be very much, oh, well, I don't know much, but I don't know much, but. <laughs> and then just from being in a familiar space, they make assumptions, they make predictions, they, again, they fantasize and create this idea of who that person is again, with very little social cues, but from being in that shared space. I agree. So the, pho- so the photograph was for them to conduct the experiment. And again, it was a really nice um, portrayal of that. And again, a, a portrayal of an experiment that is rarely taught, rarely talked about. Mm-hmm. So it's, again, the film does a fantastic job at promoting and portraying different aspects of Milgram's career. I agree. It's a it's a really fun, fascinating hour forty or whatever it is uh, look into someone that really only gets discussed in one way, and um, there's a lot more to it, and it's fun. I think Peter Sarsgaard does a phenomenal job of uh, of being a <laughs> very uh tight-lipped and emotionless straightforward straightforward person who does have a great amount of humor in his life like he he was he was a very funny person um that most people don't get to see most people don't get to see that side of him so any last lines or tidbits that you want to leave the the audience with Sophie um i would say that there were the the name drops in the film again as a psychology geek mm-hmm. just pleased me no end <laughs> so the 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 name dropping of ash uh-huh. and then when moscovici uh, was in that scene again as a geek that just that was just a fan moment exactly yeah there are some wonderful um lines within the film that actually, I think, really grasp at what psychology is. Okay. 
And for example, um, one of the lines is human nature can be studied, but not escaped, especially your own. Yeah. That was something that, again, um, quite profound from the film. And the last line of the film as well, uh, I wasn't expecting it as a last line, but it really did punch me in the face with how, um, at how poignant it was. Our awareness is the first step in our liberation. Very good. Very and good. it, it just, it, it, if I could get that tattooed or on a t-shirt, I would do. <laughs> it, it, it's just fantastic. And bearing in mind that the director is somebody who doesn't really have a background in psychology, that is a true understanding of psychology. And I think at the end of the day, what Milgram was trying to achieve by creating awareness of who we are as humans, we can liberate ourselves from the negative aspects of what human beings can do. I want to thank Sophie Halliday for joining me to discuss Experimenter. Before we say goodbye, Sophie, is there anything that you'd like to plug if, if folks can find more about you and your work? Uh, honestly, I have nothing to plug. Excellent. It's, it's not my focus of what I do. Okay. Um, I guess if I was going to plug anything, though, it's to be curious. And I just want to encourage the learning of psychology for the benefits of everyone as an individual for the benefits of society and those around us so i'll i'll plug learning and reading and exploring and watching and listening about psychology i love it i love it that's a great plug plug for psych well i want to thank you again sophie thank you this has been such an experience and such a pleasure thank you that's going to do it for this episode. Until the next one, thanks for listening.